0: would mean if they were to be serious in becoming uh, fruitful followers of his and uh, uh, those things that would attract, uh, being those things as his followers that would attract, as I mentioned this morning and I've mentioned previous weeks, the applause of heaven. I love that phrase. It's, it's, it's a beautiful phrase. Um, I thank Max Lucado for coming up with that phrase, the applause of heaven. Uh, you may remember uh, I mentioned it this morning towards the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus, um, in John 15 and 8, reminded his disciples of these words. He said, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, uh, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And I believe that this series that we're completing tonight uh, has brought us in many ways back to some basic things, back to basics, reminding us what discipleship actually means. Uh, You could call it Discipleship 101, Uh, And the challenge that it has uh, set before us uh, has been to dare to be a disciple. Now, if if you uh, were able this morning to pick up one of these uh, commitment cards about being salt and light, Uh, they're still out in the foyer, some of them, if you haven't got one. But on the back, there's there's also something that says, dare to be a disciple. And it says this, discipleship is giving when you feel like keeping, praying for others when you need prayed for, Feeding others when your own soul is hungry. Living truth before people when you can't see results. Hurting for others when your own hurts can't be spoken of. Keeping your word when it's not convenient. And being faithful when your own flesh wants to run away. Daring to be a disciple in these days. And we've seen over these past weeks uh, that there's an almost universal appeal to this teaching in these discipleship characteristics that Jesus has been talking to, a call to be, not so much as to do. Uh, and in many ways, they, they affirm um, uh, things that any follower of Jesus should agree with. And After studying uh, you know, all of these, seven of them, before we come to this eighth one, uh, realizing that they're characteristics of a man or woman who's following after God and his kingdom, it's easy to feel inadequate, really, when you think about the challenge that they present to us. Because the kind of person that Jesus has been describing seems a little too good to be true. How is it possible to live out these sort of characteristics? It feels like we're, we're looking at a, uh, you know, at a saint in a stained glass window when we look at these Beatitudes. Uh, and that uh, there can be very few Christians who live that way in the reality of day-to-day living. But God doesn't deal uh, with stained glass uh, window saints. And so while this is God's, these are God's ideal that we should live these things out, he never lowers his standards because we're sinful. Um, because uh, in order to meet his standards for discipleship uh, in these Beatitudes, uh, to help us to live up to his standard, if you like, he has given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit so that he can work through us to help us live up to what he's calling us to. And, and uh, you know, every, everyone who is genuinely Christ's and says that they're a follower of Jesus, uh, we should certainly see a progress, shouldn't we? And a growth to, towards maturity in these attitudes that Jesus has spoken about to his first disciples. We should see ourselves being transformed, as the Bible says, from glory into glory until we're finally glorified as we pass into the fullness and riches, richness of, of God's eternal kingdom whenever He comes or calls us. You know, after you first became a Christian, when you first came to Christ, maybe you initially only fulfilled the elements of these Beatitudes in a very uh, minimal sort of way. You ha- but you had to come with a broken spirit to Christ, you had to come mourning over your sin. You had to come humbly before a holy God. You had to come hungering and thirsting for righteousness that wasn't of your own. You had to come as one seeking mercy and, and being ready to, to, to give mercy. You had to come as one seeking to be purified in your heart. And you had to come as one who desired first to make peace with God and then being prepared to make peace with other people. And we looked at that uh, last, last time. And yet, however minimally, These things were were there. Um, They should now, over time, begin to bloom uh, in us, and we should progress and we should grow until they become more than minimal. They should actually become Christ-like characteristics that are dominant in our lives. That's the challenge, becoming more Christ-like. So let's remind ourselves about them one more time if you have your Bible. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 5, if you turn to it. Uh, or if you just want to listen to it, um, Matthew chapter 5. And, uh, these are the familiar words uh, that we have. And then I want to read uh, uh, a couple of verses in 1st 2nd Corinthians as well. And so uh, while you're looking up uh, Matthew 5, first Corinthians 4, second Corinthians 4, let me say that this last of the Eight beatitudes is different from the rest um, because it's one that separates, if I can put it like this, this beatitude separates the men from the boys. Um, If our only point of reference is our lives that we live in the flesh, in the here and now, then we're going to reject this particular beatitude when we come to look at it in a moment as it's absurd, it's unrealistic. But if our main point of reference is the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, then what this beatitude affirms is not unrealistic at all. And I believe that our personal response to this one beatitude reveals whether or not we're rightly orientated to all the other beatitudes. So let me read Matthew 5. When he saw the crowds, that's Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. These first seven Beatitudes that we've already looked at describe the kind of life that would be lived by A man or a woman who has become a real uh, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. But then we come to this last one, this last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And knowing that this last beatitude would catch the attention of his original listeners and even us tonight and cause them to kind of perk up their ears what's that all about? I believe Jesus then expands on it because he goes on to say, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then uh, if you have 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, i um, just going to read a couple of verses. This is the Apostle Paul, and uh, he's, he's talking about himself. And uh, just reading from verse 9, he says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle of to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we will answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Man, what a what a thing to, to speak about. Uh, and yet that was what, how Paul felt about the way sometimes that he had been treated as God's man, as God's missionary. And then he goes on to say in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, still uh, part of his, his testimony in verses uh, 15 through 18. He says, all this is for your benefit. so that the gr- In other words, all that, that, that we've been going through uh, is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And we know God will bless even the public reading tonight of his precious word. Last week, uh, we focused on the applause of heaven that comes when, you know, when we do the hard work of making peace, making peace with God and working for peace in the midst of the, the difficulties of life, the, the conflicts that come in life that can arise in our relationships with other people, even amongst fellow believers. So it might seem out of place, uh, at least it does to me, that Jesus would move from peacemaking to Persecution. Before we go any further, I want to point out some interesting things about this, the eighth and final beatitude. First, I want you to note that Jesus gives more space, more time uh, to this beatitude um, than he does to any of the others. There's three full verses uh, concerning um, this beatitude. He also personalizes this beatitude. In all the others, Jesus referred to uh, blessed people in the third person but here in these verses he speaks in the second person he, sa- he says blessed are you uh, the previous ones were blessed are they but this time it's blessed are you he's making it very personal as if to underscore the fact that persecution for God's people uh, in one way or another is inevitable something that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in just a minute and another thing about this particular beatitude is the only beatitude that includes a command and the command is, in the midst of these difficulties, persecution, and so on, the command is to rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. And also, it's the only one with an explanation. Jesus tells us why we're persecuted and why we should respond with joy and gladness. And then one last thing about this particular beatitude. It's the only one that's repeated. Jesus uses the word makarios, which you know we looked before, it means blessed or happy are they. Um, And we spent time on that, uh, but he uses it a couple of times. It's as if he's saying, you are doubly blessed whenever you go through hard times. You're doubly blessed when you're persecuted. That that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? That sounds a little bit odd. Have you ever felt singly, never mind doubly blessed by suffering? Have you ever considered yourself especially fortunate if you were ridiculed? You ever think, someone insulted me? Bless the Lord. Be honest. You know, that's not normally our usual uh, reactions. But that's what Jesus says. It's fascinating to me that uh, a follower of Jesus uh, who lives in the spirit of these beatitudes will be both a peacemaker and one who attracts some form of persecution. There's always an inevitable tension about where the believer is in the world. Because on the one hand, Christ's followers are peacemakers who are able to help others to be at peace with God uh, by the presentation of the gospel. But on the other hand, we know that not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. No matter how hard we try to make peace with some people, whatever it's about, they can refuse. They can refuse to live at peace with us. And so Christians will invariably attract some form of opposition or ridicule or persecution simply because of who they are in Christ. Because of the freedoms that we enjoy here, we don't suffer much in the way of large-scale or a violent kind of state-sponsored persecution that many of our brothers and sisters in other places in the world have to face and have to suffer But we do live in a world which is embracing values and morals that are becoming increasingly contrary to God and are often hostile to the cause of righteousness. And this irreconcilable clash between two opposing systems of life, the life devoted to obedience to Jesus Christ and to be his follower, and then the life devoted to the values and priorities of the world inevitably results in the hostility of the people of this world being poured out on those who name the name of Christ and identify themselves as followers of him in various ways. And just allow this truth to sink in tonight for a moment. If we live according to the first seven Beatitudes, we will automatically experience the eighth one in one form or another. If you're the person of verses 3 through 9, you'll experience the persecution of verses 10 through 12 to a large or lesser degree. All of the, the characteristics we've already seen in these biologies are intolerable to a sinful world. The world can't really handle somebody who's poor in spirit because the world lives in a state of self-promotion and egotism. The world can't tolerate somebody who's mourning over sinfulness because the world wants to bypass sin, ignore sin, pretend it's not there and continue to convince itself that it's okay. The world can't tolerate meekness. It honors pride. The world can't tolerate somebody who's humble and knows that they're nothing and seeks something that only can be given as a gift. The world says that we have the right to everything because we've earned it, because of who we are. The world knows little about mercy or purity, And the world has never learned, as we said last week, how to make peace and to keep peace. All of these characteristics, when they exist in and are lived out by a believer, they progressively bloom within his or her life, or at least they should, but they will run counter-culturally to the way of the world. And our faith begins and it develops and it matures as we live out the first seven. And it's then tested when we come to the last one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned uh, for his faith by the Nazis and and died in a concentration camp, Uh, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's well worth the read if you can get it. And he refers to the extraordinariness of the Christian life. And he said, With every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and people, and their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly Manifest. A man once asked his pastor, he said, If I come to Christ, if I become a Christian, will I have to give up the world? And the pastor wisely responded, I have to tell you that if you truly repent and you come to Christ Jesus, the world will give you up. It's true. When we begin to live the way that God wants us to live, there will be uh, sometimes a process of pain and suffering involved. For example James says consider it just like Jesus said consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whatever you whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything He says there's going to be some suffering there's going to be some trials there's going to be some testings as a Christian there's going to be some hardships as a Christian if we live the way that God calls us to live. When it's an original context, uh, those who were listening to Jesus probably had a difficult time with this statement because it was a common idea back then that all suffering, including persecution, was an indication that God wasn't pleased with them. And that uh, the one who was suffering was somehow to blame for what was happening. We see this clearly in the, in the book of Job. Friends, basically said, Job, you must have done something terrible to endure all all this suffering. Even his wife wanted him to give up on God. But Jesus, in this beatitude reverses this view. And the thing that makes this beatitude hard to accept is that we all like to be liked, right? We all want to be liked. And as we take a look at this blessing, the blessing that nobody wants, really, the happiness of being harassed, if you like, we can see that following Jesus is often a paradox—two things that seem opposite. We see the paradox of uh, in that He applauds us when we suffer for righteousness' sake, uh, and He sees great purpose even in our sufferings and our persecution. The first thing that we have to come to terms with and accept is that for every Christian living out their discipleship, persecution of one kind or another, to a greater or lesser degree, is a given. It's a given. Some of us have bought into the belief that once we commit our lives to Christ, everything will go great. It'll be all hunky-dory. How many of you have found out that's not the case? All of you should have, because that's not life. Uh, We've we've bought into this notion, uh, and there are plenty of those in the church at large who would even go so far as to teach that we should be healthy and successful and financially well-off and not have to endure any hard times. When actually the Bible Says the exact opposite will happen to those who honor and obey Christ. Jesus never proclaimed a prosperity gospel. And I don't care if you're listening to Bill Johnson or T.D. Jakes or Joyce Meyer or, or uh, Joel Osteen or, or 101 other TV evangelists and popular feel good evangelists. That's not the teaching of Jesus. He preached the persecution gospel. Verse 10 there again, he talks about righteousness. And as it's used here, it refers to right living or a straight way of living, of following Jesus. Paul's writing to young Timothy, uh, and he goes as far as to say in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he echoes this in Philippians 1 and 29, for it has been granted to you, he said, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And Peter, after witnessing all that Jesus went through, wrote in First Peter chapter four Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing had happened to you, because it's bound to happen one way or another. It's a guilt edged guarantee that anybody who lives out the Christian character is going to suffer. Uh, and, and by the way, the Beatitudes are best seen lived out in the character of Jesus himself, of course. And as we live sold-out lives for Christ, we're going to find that we're going to uh, be going against the grain of the society in which we live. And the, the greater the manifestation of this kind of godly character, the more inevitable will be the consequences. In, in, in Galatians chapter 4, and verse 29, it simply says, But as then... In other words, no different in our day as it was then, but in, as then, it was, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him who was born after the Spirit. Even so, it is now. Nothing has changed. He that is born of the flesh will always persecute it. He that is born of the Spirit. And there's uh, such a tension between the message and the way of life of Christians and the mindset and the way of the world that conflict and even persecution is inevitable. It will happen for two primary reasons. First reason is because of the life that we live. i this again in verse 10. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Some of us might feel mistreated or hard done by as Christians. And you know, it may have nothing to do with righteousness. Someone has said, if you don't use deodorant, Don't claim persecution because nobody wants to sit next to you at work. Or if you're rude to your employees and disrespectful to your employer or your boss, don't be surprised if you find yourself ostracized. That's got nothing to do with righteousness. Some of us believe that we're being persecuted for being a Christian or for righteous reasons, but it might just be because we're self-righteous or not behaving as God really wants us to behave. So the first reason that persecution, difficulty might happen in our lives is because of the the life that we live. The second reason for experiencing persecution is because of the Lord that we love. Noted in verse 11 where Jesus says that people will insult, persecute, say all false things uh, because of me, he said. This helps us to properly, I think, uh, understand the word righteous because to be righteous simply means to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and these early Christians they were confronted with a choice weren't they caesar or christ they chose christ and with that choice they were automatically outlawed they were branded as disloyal citizens and we too will be persecuted because of the life that we live and because of the lord that we love In his commentary, the Reverend John Stott suggests that we shouldn't be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases in the days to come, but rather we should be surprised if it doesn't. And you can already see that in so many ways in the popular media and and everywhere else. In John 15 and 20, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And later in John 16, uh, he adds, in this world you will have trouble. We can't verify all the facts, of course, uh, what I'm going to tell you now, but church history and tradition tells us that the disciples fared no better than their leader. James was beheaded. It's uh, said that on his way to be martyred, his accuser was so impressed by his courage and conviction that his accuser repented of his sin and committed himself to Christ, and he was then beheaded along with the Apostle James. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and then crucified. Matthew was slain with a sword. James was stoned to death. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified and then left hanging on the cross for three days. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Judas Thaddeus was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten with clubs and crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Simon the Zealot was crucified. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, of course, where he died as a prisoner. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And, of course, Paul was also beheaded in Rome eventually. If you chart the course of the righteous throughout history, they have always suffered for their godliness. It began in the book of Genesis, of course, didn't it? When a godly, righteous man named Abel was murdered by an ungodly, unrighteous brother who simply couldn't tolerate his righteousness... And it's been ever so since. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us Moses had to choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than compromise himself in the pleasures of the Egyptian society. Some people might say, well, you know, that was then. That was way back then. But we're living now. This is now. And today, mankind is more civilized. It's more tolerant. Christians aren't persecuted as they used to be. The truth is, our society is more resistant to Christianity than ever before. Our culture brags about its tolerance of every other faith on the planet. But the reality is our culture is tolerant of anything but Christianity. And in countries around the world, this intolerance is seen in the suffering of believers who are persecuted uh, more today than than, than ever before. According to verse 11 in uh, this beatitude, we can expect this opposition to who we are as Christians in three forms, three different forms. First, there will be verbal insults. The word insult means to taunt or to call names. Has anyone ever taunted you or called you names or, you know, talked about you being a Christian? <laughs> look at him, look at her. You won't keep it up. You're goody-goody, are you? And, and, and insults means to taunt or call names. So biblically speaking, to be insulted speaks of misrepresentations that degrade someone's someone's reputation and is closely related to slander. Jesus says we're blessed when we're verbally insulted for his sake. And it's interesting that Peter encouraged us not to be ashamed if we suffer as a Christian because at the time he wrote this, the name Christian was just that it was an insult. If we're insulted by being called a jerk, Ever been called a jerk, a thief, a hypocrite, an idiot, a loser? The best thing to do, first of all, is to make sure that the claim isn't true and then to leave it in God's hands. But if it is true, we need to repent before God and apologize to those that we've offended. But if we're called a Jesus freak, a religious fanatic, or what seems to be more, uh, more often used these days a fundamentalist, extremist, People are simply identifying you with Jesus and you know that's a great honor. That's a great honor. So don't be ashamed of it. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine says, people hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads as they passed by the cross. So when you're insulted for what you believe, what you stand up for, you're in good company. Don't forget that. The second way Christians can experience persecution, of course, is by physical attack. The word persecute means to to chase or to pursue with hostile intent or to be hunted down uh, like an animal, and it can be defined as repeatedly or continually picking on someone. The apostles Peter and John were once brought, uh, you probably know this, before the leaders in Jerusalem and commanded to stop preaching Jesus to the people, Uh, but the apostles were under higher orders than theirs, and they weren't... They weren't being obnoxious, they were just being obedient. But nevertheless, they were placed in a prison. And miraculously, an angel came and released them and told them to continue preaching. And when they were brought before the leaders again, they were physically beaten and once again commanded they shouldn't speak in the name of Jesus. And when they were released again, the Bible tells us that they departed from the presence of the council who were were assaulting them, Acts 5 and 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy, to suffer shame for his name. Amen. What a great way to respond to a beating, to consider it a great honor to be counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. Most of us are too short-sighted that we would have thought that it was the worst thing that could have happened to them or to us. But the apostles considered being shamefully beaten for Jesus an honor for which they were scarcely worthy. And then thirdly, there's verbal insults, there's physical attack. And then Jesus says persecution can take the form of false accusations. When followers of Christ have to face those who falsely say all kinds of evil against them. I don't know if you've been on the receiving end of someone saying something false or not true or hurtful or things behind your back. But I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't feel good it certainly doesn't feel good. They did the same to Jesus as they tried to destroy his good name, but according to 1 Peter 2, 23, he did not retaliate. And all of this simply shows that persecution may take many different forms. We may not suffer actual physical violence because of our relationship with Jesus, but we may suffer insults, we may suffer ridicule, we may suffer rejection, we may be called names, become the butt of jokes, we may even be misrepresented or misquoted and become the objects of gossip or slander because of our faith. Our failures may become exploited and paraded in front of other people, while our sincere efforts to repent and follow the way of righteousness may be deliberately ignored and misconstrued. But in any case, Jesus sees it all, and he promises a blessing when it's because of him. That means, young people here tonight, you can take your stand as a Christian at school Uh, around biblical creation, for example, when some schools are teaching all about evolution. But, you know, you may be laughed at, you may be made fun of or ridiculed. Or you can refuse to give in to the prevailing views on sexual impurity by remaining pure in your behavior and your conversation. Uh, And if you do, you'll be talked about, probably called intolerant, along with maybe some other choice names. Refuse to do something, no matter who we are here tonight. That's illegal or unethical at work. So now you're suspect. You're denied promotions, maybe refused raises, and maybe even given a pure, pure job review because you won't do something that will cross the line. Talk about the sufficiency of Christ alone in the gospel, and you'll you know you know what'll happen. You'll be con- considered narrow-minded. Treated like you're a bigot in a thousand shapes and sizes with varying degrees of intensity but it's still persecution aimed to silence your faith your Christianity to dull your conscience to make you fearful of living for Christ and most of us can probably agree with the the paradox you know as I've said that persecution is a given but it may stretch us even here tonight to see the paradox of persecution as a gift it's a gift from God God applauds those who face these things and gives the kingdom of heaven as a gift to those who absorb the anger or the attacks of others for righteousness' sake. So we should accept that we're, we're blessed when people come against us for our faith. Persecution is one of the triggers that causes God to pour out his blessings on our lives. Listen to Hebrews 11. describes what happened to a number of the heroes of the faith. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then in verse 39, we read this phrase, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not their home. And in some mysterious way, they saw persecution as a gift that brought them to their heavenly home. Oh, what faith they had. Again, while most of us can probably agree that you know, it's a paradox to see persecution as a given, it may be a stretch for us to see the paradox of persecution as a gift, but listen, there's a third paradox around this beatitude that's faith stretching, and it's found in verse 14, which says that persecution, listen, should actually make us glad. Glad. The phrase, be glad, is a command. And it means to leap with exuberant gladness, to jump with great excitement. But it should be noted that Jesus is not implying that we should be happy for the persecution itself, but for what it represents. Whatever else it does, persecutions, whatever comes against us because of our faith, it should confirm our relationship with God. Someone has said that persecution is the certificate of Christian authenticity. We should rejoice that people see Jesus in us. 1 Peter 4 and 16. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Living the redeemed life and experiencing the antagonism of the godless world that we live in is evidence that salvation, our salvation is genuine, that Jesus thinks enough of us to let us share in the same things that he went through himself. And secondly, persecution not only confirms our relationship to him, but it causes reliance. When we suffer, we're more prone to do some self-examination and we're forced to lean on God in ways that maybe we've never done before. Paul experienced that in 2 Corinthians. He said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I I delight in insults and weaknesses, in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong in him. And then thirdly, persecution not only confirms our relationship and causes uh, uh, reliance but it cultivates righteousness because one of the best ways to grow is to go through some grief. And that's why Jesus mentions uh, the persecution of the prophets that that they face before us. They they serve as models because of their rejection of of the ways of the world. And their rejection by the world uh, was not the exception. To suffer what is right is to be part of a great succession of godly men and women. And then fourthly, we're drawn to a close. Persecution confers a reward. Sometimes when we're suffering because of our faith, all we can do on uh is focus on what's what's to come in eternity. We may lose everything on earth, but we're going to inherit everything in heaven as God's children. Towards the end of his life, the Apostle Paul had every confidence that God would release him from his difficulties when he said to Timothy in the second letter, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And recognizing that God may have other plans, he concludes, and and, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Of course, God didn't release him from being beheaded eventually, but he certainly brought him safely to his heavenly kingdom. So as we come to the end of this uh, this sermon series, it should be clear that the Beatitudes are not easy, not easy to live out. Perhaps the problem of our age is that we've made, we've made the Christian life too painless. We've gone along to get along. Pastor Kent Hughes, an American pastor, explains why there's so little persecution apparent in what we see in the Western world. He says, by far the greatest reason there is so little persecution is that the church has become like the world. Church, he means the people in the church. If You want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked or his name is taken in vain. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Don't draw moral judgments. Take no stand on moral issues. And don't share your faith. Follow that formula and it'll be smooth sailing. Notice how all of the other Beatitudes previous to this one are inner attitudes. See, the Jews had an external religion. And now Christ is giving them an internal one. They're all attitudes, uh, and this one is also an attitude. But it's an attitude of willingness, of, of willingness to be persecuted, whatever it takes. It's that lack of fear, that lack of shame, that presence of boldness that says, "I will be in this world what Christ will have me to be. I will say in this world what Christ would have me say. I will." And if it, persecution results, let it be so. Let it be so. For I suppose that this is where some of us. Out because we're not willing. I have to confess that I struggle with that myself at times. I'm not willing sometimes to take what I'm going to get if I say what I need to say. I'm not willing sometimes to be bold and and sometimes say what needs to be said, regardless of the consequences. I'm sometimes not willing to live the Christ life in the midst of the Christless situation. And to want to accommodate myself and have the world like me. Like I said earlier, we all want to be liked. And inevitably, I I justify myself by saying, well, if I'm popular with with them in the world, if I'm popular with them, go along with them, and they like me, maybe I can sneak the gospel in. Have you thought that? Well, I'm preaching to myself first here. Dude, God doesn't need sneaky... He doesn't need sneaky prophets. He certainly doesn't need sneaky witnesses and evangelists. He needs those who are willing to be bold and unashamed. I know we're living in an age that advocates tolerance when we're supposed to tolerate everyone and everything, no matter how perverse or destructive, except when it comes to genuine Christianity. The world in which we live assumes that it will welcome Christians with open arms until the time, until the first time it meets the genuine article. Real loyalty to Christ creates friction in the hearts of those who only pay him lip service. It will arouse their consciences and leave them with only two alternatives follow Christ or do your best to silence Christ in them. Do that, they to try to silence you and me a personal level sometimes, happens on a political level, happens in all sorts of levels. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. What have you said or done recently that has caused anyone to challenge your faith? Have you had an occasion recently to unashamedly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you had any occasion to risk Speaking out for Jesus and defend the cause of Christ and Christianity. Now, I'm not asking this as if to say that we ought to run right out of the door tonight and find ourselves some sort of persecution to suffer. Bring it on ourselves. That would be presumptuous to say nothing of being stupid. All I'm saying is that if we're we're genuine, faithful followers of Christ and we haven't experienced much in the way of hardship because of our faith, then we're to consider ourselves to be the exception, not the rule. Because every Christian who puts Christ first will eventually face some backlash somehow, somewhere, and at some time. I want to finish with a brief story, and then I want you to watch a a video that will come up after this. In the early days of the church, a Christian offended a certain secular king by his faith, and he was threatened with banishment because of his faith in Christ. And he replied to the king, he said, "'Sir, you can't banish me, "'for this world is my father's world.' The king then said he would confiscate all his possessions, and the Christian answered, "'Sir, you can't confiscate my possessions "'because my treasures are laid up in heaven.' The king was starting to get furious and told him that he would make him live in isolation away from his friends, and the believer said, "'Sir, you can't remove me from my greatest friend.' because he lives within my heart. And finally the king shouted out, then I'll have you killed. To which the Christian calmly replied, you can take away my breath. Never take my life because it's hid. What a testimony. What a, uh, what a, what a beautiful thing it is to know that we are Christ's and we can withstand anything I wonder, are you part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed? To I Watch this video. It's a spoken video, but it's a challenging video. It's, it's actually the testimony of a Nigerian Christian. Some years ago, uh, this young man uh, was martyred for his faith. And as they were clearing up his little home, uh, they found this written down, this, this, this testimony, this uh, confession, if you like, that he belonged to the fellowship of the unashamed. And it's quite challenging. So let's just uh, watch it and, and listen to it for the next few moments. Quite a challenge, isn't it? When he comes back, he will have no trouble recognizing me. Will he recognize you as one of his followers? The way that you've lived out these beatitudes, and especially this last one in the old sinful world in which we have to live, that uh, increasingly is coming against Christ and Christians and Christians? Well, be encouraged by by all of that, and all we can say is that you know, we need Christ now more than ever and we'll need him more tomorrow than today.